Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Dawn Walter, known as an anthropologist and the founder of the Responsibility Summit, previously known as the Anthropology and Tech Conference in the UK, uh, which brings social scientists and technologists together, have critical conversations around you know really important issues of the day, such as AI, but many others as well. Um, we'll you know, we'll, we'll get into the summit a bit in the podcast for sure, but um, also today, I think we we share a common interest in seeing anthropologists go into other roles, which is a to a degree a portion of what you're trying to do with the summit in the podcast. So maybe we can talk about you know anthropologists in product roles and in you know non research roles, whether that's writing, leadership, whatever it could be. Um, hopefully, with you know the goal of maybe showing a path other than working in UX or organizational culture. Um, so Dawn, thanks for coming on. Would you start by sharing how you came into anthropology? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so I was listening to a previous guest, Laura, talking about her kind of her journey into anthropology and how she'd had sort of quite an interesting um, experience is culturally and that somebody said to her that she should become an anthropologist. And it made me laugh because I think uh, I think about my kind of my childhood and how anthropology, it was almost as if anthropology was kind of holding up this big, big sign going anthropology, anthropology, because my, my father was an academic. He was a, um, an electrical engineer and he went to teach at a university in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, which is in East Africa. This is, this is going to date me, but this is when it was in the seventies. Um, and so I had a, an amazing cultural experience as a very young child, you know, living in this incredibly different country. And then on the way back uh, from Africa after our two years uh, stay there, we went through lots of different countries like Greece and Egypt and everything like that and, um, and Italy. So I had all these amazing cultural experiences and and I loved it. Um, and I was a very curious child as an only child. And I have this very vivid memory. I think maybe this was the, the future anthropologist um, in me. And my mother was telling me off because I was so busy staring at this woman. And she was sort of hissing at me, stop staring, don't stop staring. And um, so there's that sort of curiosity in people and what they do and how they behave. And I still stare a lot to a degree, but I had to put my sunglasses on so I can stare surreptitiously. <laughs> And, and then later on, so my uh, father was uh, went to Fiji for a couple of, no, three years. And again, another amazing um, cultural experience. Um, he was uh, head of the computing department there. And I was still in England. I've just finished my A-levels. And he said to me, why don't you come out? So I came out for a year and, and studied at the university there before going on to um, doing my first degree, which is in European history at, uh, in Norwich. And so there was another big flag, you know, anthropology, anthropology uh, there, having another amazing cultural experience. And uh, one of the subjects that I did actually uh, as part of my European history degree was um, social history, which I loved because it was about people. And um, one of the uh, books that we were reading, I've still got it here, it was The People of the Sierra by uh, Julian Pitt Rivers, who's an anthropologist. And you think by this stage, I would have thought, you know, I'm going to do anthropology at some stage. Um, no, still not. And then I had a best friend who was doing anthropology at um, 
university uh, a bit earlier than me and still didn't click. So it was very, very strange why, I don't know, this, this anthropology subject still hadn't kind of twigged for me. And then I ended up in uh, New Zealand. Uh, this is probably late 90s. So I was there for 20 years. That was a big portion of my life. And I um, sort of fell into tech. So I was. I started my own business. Um, I was working, living and working on the um, in Gisborne, which is a very small town, if anyone knows New Zealand, um, on the east coast of the North Island. And I've always loved uh, technology because my dad was a, an electrical engineer and he was, you know, he taught me about computers and sort of imbued in me that sort of love for technology uh, and computing. And I also loved writing. So I was always very good at English um, and I had wanted to be for, for, for a very long time uh, a journalist, which Cora, your pre- one of your previous guests also talked about as well. And it made me laugh. But yes, that was almost a route that I went down. And I didn't. And sometimes I, I wish that I had, but that's another story. Um, so my two loves, um, you know, technology and writing. Um, so I just created this business, um, start, started it from scratch in this town where I didn't know anyone um, in a country where I really wasn't familiar. I'd married a Kiwi um, and I'd met him in New Zealand when I was, was traveling there. And so I set up this business and I was doing computer training and I was doing, I ended up falling into sort of technical writing because I was writing the training courses and then actually discovering that as much as I loved doing the training, I also loved the writing uh, as much. And so then I looked, um, didn't go very well the business because I was very young and um, we kind of had to move around a little bit. And then my marriage fell apart and I ended up moving down to Christchurch in, in the South Island. And Christchurch is, I, I, there's lots, I'm sure there's lots of cities all around the world that call themselves this. It was called the Silicon Valley of, of New Zealand. There was a, um, a big kind of electronics space there. There was a big company called Tate Electronics, and it basically employed all the kind of electrical engineers, hardware engineers, software engineers, almost in the country, so to speak. And so because that company, and it had been going for a long time, attracted all these um tech people and um, there were lots of kind of other companies around uh, Christchurch or in, in Christchurch who were you know software companies um software development companies so I fell into technical writing and uh started working at, at Tate Electronics and I was writing it was very very dry kind of technical writing um about uh, they were doing um, base stations and kind of two-way radios, so radios for ambulance, fire, and, and police. And um, I wanted to know more about the users, um, and it was very hard because you, uh, and I'm sure this will be familiar for a lot of people, it was very hard to get to the users at that stage. This, this was kind of early 2000s. And so I had to find the users by stealth. So one of the products I was working on, um, was for I need to talk to firemen, for example. So a lot of the user manuals were going into these boxes with the radio, um, beautifully designed by this graphic designer. Um, and I wanted to know how these manuals were used in real life. You know, in in by these big you know firefighters in their trucks and with their you know, and discovered the long and short of it is I discovered that they were just throwing them out the out the window because there wasn't any use to them and creating their own mm-hmm. user guides. But um so I became I then did a um sorry this is a very long story and then became very interested in kind of usability and went and did a um I did a kind of formal graduate diploma in, in tech comms and what actually one of the papers was usability and I became more and more interested in the user. And then started thinking, well, maybe I should go back to university and and do another degree. And I sort of thought about HCI, and then stumbled on anthropology. And um, I don't don't know why I picked anthropology. Um, and because I had done a obviously previous degree, I thought that I could just walk straight into a master's degree in anthropology. And in New Zealand, for whatever reason, found out that I couldn't. And so I um, was kind of still working in this tech space, still working in this kind of interaction design, user experience space. And I um, helped run a user professionals association uh, conference um, in Christchurch, I think it was. Um, so I was kind of going down that kind of route. Um mm-hmm. 
and then ended up starting my degree in anthropology at Wellington, which is obviously the capital of New Zealand, lovely city, um, if anyone goes there, and uh, absolutely fell in love with the subject. I just, I felt like I, I don't know, I, you can see the smile on my face, <laughs> but I just, um, I, just like, I love the subject. I still love it. Um, and I just felt uh, so kind of happy and fulfilled, intellectually stimulated by, the, by, the, by it. And I think if I had to sum up why I love it so much is that for me uh, personally, I think it teaches us to respect difference. And um, I think in this very divided world, now that we are in perhaps it's always been divided but it just feels more so at the moment I think anthropology is um, such an important subject and I really really wish that anthropology would be taught at schools I think right from the get-go you know so that you can understand why people do things differently to you and that it's yes it is strange but if you understand why it's strange um that these people don't aren't you're not scared of them anymore you're not kind of feeling anxious or resentful or you know all these negative emotions about this particular group of people doing this really strange thing um so i finished my degree went on to do my um honors year it's a slightly different system in new zealand it's a bit like scotland your honors year is is a separate year so went on and did that um and was sort of working still part-time in the kind of tech world doing training doing tech writing and often with um, software companies, um, and then um, had to put that down for a little bit. Um, there was kind of a big earthquake in the middle of all of that in Christchurch, which um, I laugh about now, but it was terrifying at the time. It was very, very big, and 200 people died. Um, and so I was sort of starting to do my master's, and then because of what happened in Christchurch, I decided to move to Auckland again uh, working in another tech company and then finally decided to do my master's and um, I think at that point I realized that I wasn't going to stay either in academia or in New Zealand and so um, I decided to come back to England and um, I hadn't I didn't know what I didn't know how to use the anthropology there's not an applied kind of um, scene, I suppose, in New Zealand. I'd never, in all the time that I'd worked in tech as a technical writer alongside, you know, software engineers, product designers, interaction designers, usability experts, I'd never, ever come across an anthropologist. Um, so I didn't kind of have a picture in my head of how I could use anthropology. I'd sort of vaguely heard, you know, or maybe I could do something with it. And I wasn't quite sure how at that point. So um, made the big shift back to uh, to England. Hadn't been here, well, I'd been here, but hadn't lived here for 20 years. So it was, as you can imagine, it was a pretty big culture shock coming back to England. And then um, after, uh, so this is 2017, and then after a period of time, after I was kind of settled in, um, obviously bought a house, uh, did the house up or made it look nicer, um, and then I thought, well, I, I really want to use anthropology. How can I do that? And I knew that I didn't want to be an academic. I knew that I wanted to, I had a business previously, so I knew how to set one up. So I thought, well, I'll start a business and let's, and let's see what happens. Um, and um, many grateful thanks to Sam Ladner for writing Practical Ethnography <laughs> because that was a kind of um, really important book for me to read. And I think if anyone, for me personally, I think if anyone wants to set up a, a consulting firm, then start with that book because it was enormously helpful to me. And there's lots of things about being, about setting up a consultancy or a business Um and one of the things I've discovered about myself, and perhaps something that we can come back to later, is that you have to have many hats. And I'm much more comfortable with the marketing hat. I'm very happy with the research side of it. Um, I don't. I'm not as happy in the kind of account hunting role. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's a particular personality type. And I've learned that I can sell. I, I can sell the conference really well. I found. I'm not so good at selling myself and I don't know whether that is 
Um, I think possibly because it's me, I'm having to sell myself rather than the conference. It also might be a female thing as well. You know, I think women particularly don't think they can do things or they hold hold themselves back. That's also something I've learned this year. And if there are any women listening, um, I definitely recommend reading Playing Big. Uh, which is a fantastic book. Thanks for sharing all of that. It was very helpful. Um, seeing how you know you really kind of came into tech with the, sort of the inspiration, maybe from your father. Uh, you know, you got involved quite early, and we share that. I mean, I was you know working in tech at that time, and you know, it's seeing how it's matured since then, and why there's a need for anthropology within the tech space is is again something we share, and uh, not to say we're alone in that by any means, but it's different than the people who got a PhD or a master's or whatever it may be, and then realize there's, you know, they need a job and there's an opportunity in tech versus being in tech and realizing there's an issue and we want to do something about it. So I'm, I'm really glad we can maybe have that conversation, but also, you know, we've both started various organizations. So there's an entrepreneurial spirit that we share um, that I think would be good to touch on a little bit more. And, um, you know, we'll certainly get into that as we talk about, uh, you know, firing up the, the, the summit, but, um, I guess just to go back a little bit, you know, so as you're starting any of your the businesses you've started along the way, you know, there is certainly things to learn. You know, you already said that you had a harder time selling yourself, say, than the summit. But um, aside from reading Sam's book, you know, what else was really challenging to you that you think others should know, you know, that are, because I should add, you know, there's, Branding yourself, say, is actually kind of a critical skill, but it's really not something that's taught in school, right? Yeah. And, and there's many other things not taught in school. You know, if you're going through an anthropology program, you're not learning anything about founding a business, you know, legally accounting, right? There's there's all these, you know, project management, there's all these other things. So what did you particularly struggle with and, you know, how did you sort of address that? Um, I think it's finding a niche. Um, I think one of the problems I had... Um, one of the challenges I've faced, particularly with a consultancy, is I, and and it made me laugh listening to Laura as well, she also touched on this, is that she was interested in everything, and I am too. And I and trying to make a decision about what I wanted to do when I grew up, you know, what career mm-hmm. path I was going to choose, was also a little bit with a consultancy. I was like, where am I going to, where am I going to land? Where am I going to position myself? Uh, what kind of niche am I going to uh, fill? And I think I decided that I would stay in the tech space because I was comfortable with it. You know, I'd hung around um, software engineers, CTOs. It was a, it was a space I felt really comfortable in because I knew it. I was it was familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's finding that niche. And if you're like me and you're interested in absolutely everything, it's like how do I how do I decide? You know. And so I guess in a way. The conference, um, I don't want to go, go to this too quickly, but um, the conference was essentially a business idea. You know, it, it had evolved. So it was a way for me to show how anthropology could be used in tech, you know, why anthropologists were valuable. So I guess I was sort of working towards my my niche, as it were. Yeah, sure. And so... You know, at the time when you're back in the UK and you're now trying to essentially sell, you said sell yourself, which is to a degree true. But the the other thing you're selling is the value of anthropology. And so, how was that? At you know, in the UK at that time, or was there an appetite for it? I yeah, I didn't feel that it, there was. I don't because I'm based in Bristol, so we're it's in the southwest, so London's two hours by train and um it's also a place where there's lots of kind of lots of kind of there is there's lots of tech uh companies uh and they've also got a long history of of tech happening here so um i think i was quite surprised i think to be honest how there's lots of usability stuff like there's lots of there's a lot there's a big kind of digital community here there's lots of usability stuff, but they, the, I don't think anybody had heard about anthropology. I felt like I was the first, I think I was the first business anthropologist in Bristol. And so again, you know, I was in a city where I didn't know anyone. I was in a country I hadn't been in for 20 years, didn't know the culture anymore. Mm. Um, starting a business from scratch 
and also up against uh, a city, or well, not not up against, but you know, in a city that didn't really know anything about anthropology. So I was, you know, at the bottom of this mountain essentially. Um, so yes, I, I was I was a bit perplexed about that. I thought that everybody would know what anthropologists did and discovered that actually that wasn't the case. So there was a lot of, I had to do a lot of educating, you know, what is an anthropologist? What, you know, what do we do? And and sort of being familiar as a technical writer, taking, you know, taking jargon and translating it, you're having to do that again, you know, taking something that isn't understood, widely understood, and then trying to put it in such a way or explain it in such a way that people understand it. So there was a lot of educating that had to be done. So so, so that's great, and, and that's kind of where I was trying to get to. So, you know, as a writer, you're essentially a communicator. You're kind of telling, you know, stories, if you will. And so, that's another, you know, storytelling is something that's not really like taught in school as like a, you know, as a skill that is valuable in the workplace. But of course, it is valuable from the moment you start applying for jobs. You know, through your your whole career and and the, the need to get buy-in on projects, the need to help people realize, you know, the findings and the insights that come out of the research or, or whatever role you're in. Um, so for people who are listening that maybe haven't had practice selling anthropology yet, you know, what did you find that was valuable either at that stage of your career or maybe more so now in the way you're pitching, you know, the value of the summit? Is there anything that seems to really resonate with people to help them realize what we contribute? I think it's, I think it's it's pulling it back to people all the time. You know, we we understand people. You know, and and the focus should always be on people. Companies are made up of people. You've got employees. You've got citizens. You've got your customers are people. And I think that that tends to be forgotten. And the people who in Bristol who were interested in about in anthropology and the what it could bring to what they were doing were tended to be not the tech companies, but the um, people who were kind of already doing um, usability or writing websites or, you you know, UX more broadly. So they were interested in what had, anthropology had to offer because they wanted to understand their, their consumers better. And that's, you know, people. Um, so, yes, and you're, you're right. It is all about storytelling. So, telling stories around, um, you know, why people matter um, is really important. Um, you know, why someone's not um, doing what you want them to do. For example, I remember uh, there was a cafe here, or there is a cafe here in Bristol, and they were trying to get people to stop uh, using reusable cups, for example. And so they just stopped giving people reusable cups um sorry takeaway cups and so we're insisting that people came in and and bought their own cups so you either went in with your own cup or you bought a coffee and sat in the cafe and drank it and used and in one of their cups and they just stopped doing this you know it was just a decision that was made um and i couldn't help thinking well why didn't you do a bit of research before <laughs> before you made this decision why didn't you work out why people use takeaway cups all the time. And so it's about people. How do people behave? Um, and these things don't, well, you can't force behaviors necessarily. Um, you know, how, why are people doing what they do? You know, make, make an effort to understand uh, them, particularly if it's your business. You know, if you're going to make a decision like that, and it was a big decision and they were lo- losing lots of money um, over it. Uh, for a long time I think they've recovered now because they've sort of I think people just realize that that's that's their business model and if you want a coffee there you have to bring your own cup so yeah so it's about understanding it's always you know focus is always on people and and knowing what they do thanks so you know to sort of build a bridge to to the summit given that you have a history in tech you know, you're, you know, I'm going, yeah, I'm going to assume that somewhere along the way, you're seeing some problems within the tech space that, you know, are festering in you and leading up to the point of founding the summit. Those problems, some are probably 
pretty timeless and are were with us then and are with us today. Others are new, such as AI and you know modern issues of algorithmic bias, though that also has been around you know largely since the beginning, though maybe you know a little bit um, amplified today given given machine learning. But nonetheless, there's you know there's some old problems, there's some new problems. But what were you really seeing, and you know what was happening over this period of time that was causing concern for you? I think I can trace it back to realizing that people were saying, um, you know, when they were talking about, particularly about AI, they were saying, you know, it's um, it's the problem is to do with the with the um, the technology. You know, it's the data that's biased, it's the tech that's biased, it's the you know, machines are neutral. You know, and it's I I, mm-hmm. I was thinking it's not nothing to do with with that it's to do with the people you know with the people who are designing the software who are designing the tech we're all biased we all have we all have our own biases and so um i wrote quite a strong article for um my blog uh, about that and um so i guess this is now the origin story of of, of the summit and um it got this was in um april 2018 then about uh, not even quite a year after I'd set up my consultancy. And um, I'd written this blog post and it got the attention of a, um, a website. Uh, they're a non-profit network here in the Southwest. And so I, I rewrote it for them and then got asked to uh, present a talk about some of the issues that I'd raised, you know, the sort of the the Google racist labelling of photographs, all that sort of thing. And, I, you know, it's it's about the people it's the machines aren't neutral and there's still that idea it's still prevalent today that machines are neutral and it's um it does my head in um and so um and so i got this idea that um okay well we really do need uh social scientists we really do need anthropologists um in the tech space um because it's all about the social cultural and i was hearing a lot of you know, it's all about ethics. It's all about ethics. And ethics are also cultural, you know, and they also change over time. Um, I remember giving an example, actually, at the very first summit when I um, did my welcome speech and I was talking about ethics. Um, you know, arranged marriages used to be quite normal in Europe last century or the century before. And now, you know, we look at them askance. And that's because things change over time, you know, culture changes. And so I felt very strongly that um, it wasn't just about ethics and we needed to get the social scientists involved, particularly anthropologists, because I'm an anthropologist. And so I thought, um, I'll I'll start a conference, (laughs) as you do. (laughs) Um, And as I said, I think previously, it was initially a business idea. I thought I will uh, showcase uh, anthropology to the tech people here in Bristol and show them why anthropologists and social scientists are needed in tech. Um, and then I think, I, I can't remember when the switch was, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but there was a point at which I realised, actually, I don't care about that so much in terms of helping my business, you know, because initially the, the idea was to help my business and to showcase what anthropologists could do. And at some point, it became a social justice issue for me and um, was very passionate about the fact that, you know, this technology, this artificial intelligence that we're creating is having a significant and is still having a significant impact on people's lives. And I felt very strongly about that. And so that's how it came to be. Um, And that's still what drives me. That's still, it's no longer... I mean, Monday Nance, my company, is the kind of, I guess, the foundation the, 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 through which kind of everything happens. But it's no longer, it's, no, it's not a vehicle for me to find business. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a community now. It's a, a community mm-hmm. around um, this issue, which is um, we need social scientists and tech designing and um, building technology. So we'll come back maybe to the to the social focus in a second. But one of the things that I do think is interesting about it, and 
it's not that you're completely alone in this. I mean, I I think why the world needs anthropologists tries to do the same. Epic seems to do the same in the states, but you know, it is explicitly trying to bring together different parties. And the reason I'm calling that out is because anytime I'm in conversations like here in the states about how do we build you know up the funnel or, or the the future like job market for anthropologists. Much of the conversation seems focused on like, you know, we need to train and, and academia without always accounting for the other side of the market, which is like, you know, hiring managers and broadly speaking, the just general awareness in business that these are skills that you ought to have in house and that these, you know, and that anthropologists and other social scientists are a good fit for those roles. And so, you know, I'm particularly fond of you sort of bring together the anthropologists and technologists to share so that you know, you're sort of educating, you know, in in both directions. Um, because while, it, you know, obviously, yeah, while broadly speaking across the globe, there is more appreciation today than there was 15 years ago. Uh, there are still many people out there who don't understand what anthropology does and, and you know, don't see how we necessarily fit in the sector. But um, so I just want to kind of call that out as something I really appreciate about it right from the, right from the start. Um, and so now kind of pivoting forward, to more of the social aspect. So, you know, originally you, it was framed out even in your first podcast around AI, but it does seem like it's a little bit broader, Um, you know, AI and, and maybe it's most common application of machine learning are certainly issues that we need to address. But, you know, you had the podcast episode about DNA testing, which is something I've myself researched and given my TED talk on and, you know, have been fond of, and, you know, certainly, Again, machine learning is playing a role in making you know even recommendations within the, the genealogy space. Uh, but my point of saying all this is is that it is broader. The issues are broader than just AI, um, though AI will probably underride many of many of the future issues that we have, you know, with automation and robotics and such things. But so, what you know in your mind. Even if that's where you did start, how are you seeing this shape up? You know, like what kind of topics are you really trying to tackle that go beyond just AI? I think I realized over the course of, I think between the second conference in 2020 and then in the planning of the next one, um, behind the scenes, I have sort of people I bounce ideas off of who don't necessarily. I mean, I, I organise the conference single-handedly, but I bounce ideas off of people. Um, and the feeling was that it couldn't just be about artificial intelligence. The problems are wider. The problems were in tech more generally. And so we changed it, or I changed it, when I say we, it's a role, <laughs> um, uh, to responsible tech, you know, championing socially responsible tech, not just AI, because I think we need to recognise that there are huge changes coming along uh, because of art- artificial intelligence, but at a fundamental level, the problems are there in tech. You know, it's not just, you know, they're already there. We know they're there. Mm. And so I wanted to broaden it out. Um, and I think it, it's interesting because um, when I alluded earlier to the fact that I, I'm a, you know, I'm a generous, I love lots, of, there's lots of things that interest me. And in some respects, that is reflected in the conference because it's, for me, it's like this intersection of so many different things. You know, you've got technology, you've got design, you've got social science, you've got law, you've got policy. Um, and so maybe I've made a, a rod for my own back, but it, it there's so there's a big pot there, right? And there's so many things in that that um, are in this kind of responsible tech space. And... So you can really explore so many different things, as you've seen with the podcast, as you alluded to. You know, you've got sort of um, med tech, fintech, anything um, in that kind of responsible tech space. So that's why I wanted to broaden it out and have a broader conversation about technology more generally and not just artificial intelligence because the problems are still there and we need to be talking about them. Sure. Yeah, and data, privacy, law, as you say, right, all those things. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot, um, and even just the culture of tech, as even the organizational culture of tech. You know, to, to tie it back to maybe where business anthropology kind of starts, right? I mean, just the, you know, even the inclusivity of hiring practices, or actually even like the use of AI now in hiring, right? There's there's so many issues to dive into for sure, and which is great to see, you know, another community popping up around this. But I guess that raises the question, 
you know, how, how are you building a community? Um, you know, what are you doing? I mean, a summit is one thing and the podcast is another, of course they contribute, but you know, what have you learned of how to sort of self-organize, you know, a new community, you know, both online and off? Yeah, I think, um, cause it is such a broad community, which is lovely. I think that's one of the, um, and this is probably the case for Epic as well, because the core thing for Epic is ethnography and the core thing for, for the summit, for the responsibility summit is responsible tech. So in terms of building a community, I felt that, um, it almost, in some ways, it almost creates itself because you are what I, the, one of the loveliest feedbacks I had uh, for the summit was that I've created a home for people where there wasn't one previously. So there's, there's, there's something in there. There's something in the summit that really speaks to people. And I suspect that it's layered. It's probably, you know, it's, it's that layering of social justice, tech, data, feminism, lots of things. Um, design anthropology you know lots and lots of things that kind of coalesce come together um and i think that creating a community i i do consciously try and bring people in i think obviously the the summit in in and out of itself brings people together and people network and create create the community themselves in a way um, and then there's also that sort of nurturing of it. So we've got a book club and we've got a uh, the podcast, as you mentioned, um, and I'm starting to do sort of smaller events so that between the conferences or between the summits, there are places where people can come together over an interest, a subject of interest, mutual interest. Um, and then there's the newsletter as well that kind of brings people together um, and to, sh- to share things with them. And then we've got people writing occasionally for the website as well. So, um, and then, you know, obviously social media and and LinkedIn, all those sorts of things. So there is a lovely big community who care passionately about um, creating responsible tech. Um, And it's very rewarding. Um, I think if you'd said to me, um, and I've had this conversation before, if I knew what was involved, uh, and it's a lot of hard work, it's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of sweat and tears in creating this conference, I probably wouldn't have done it. But then that it sometimes it's that I look back and I I think there was a, very, a lot of nativity, nativity uh, when I started because I uh, literally thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a conference. And I just went and did it. And I just, I look back now and I think I must have been completely bonkers to use a very British word. Um, you know, there was this sort of this bl- absolute blind faith that it was going to work out, it was going to be okay. And um, it has worked out marvellously and it is okay. But yeah, it's that, bl- I don't know where that blind faith came from. I think in some respects it was just that sort of fire in my belly, that social justice fire that was burning and that has kept me going through some tough times um yeah but I think that so we've we've got a lovely community and I think um I look forward to seeing where where the summit will evolve for sure you know you just mentioned in there you know you have to be bonkers to do it um I've never really had the chance to to probe into that while on the podcast but you maybe want to share a little bit um you know for anybody who's inclined to organize can you maybe dive a little bit deeper into the process of starting, you know, a summit and um, what you've learned along the way, if anybody else wants to start something? Yeah, it's, if you're going to take on something as bigger as a project, as a conference single-handedly, um, it's effectively, I've started another business, essentially. Um, be prepared to put long hours in. Um, actually just don't think about it just do it literally because otherwise you're going to be paralyzed by fear um if you're going to organize a conference and you're passionate in it absolutely go for it and there will be tough times along the way um find a support person i had at least one support person rah rah in the background and when things got really really tough um you know i was texting i remember sitting in an airport in uh, waiting for a flight to copenhagen 
and texting my my friend and 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 she was going you can do this you know you're brilliant you're you know you need you need someone to do the rah-rah um so find your rah-rah person um and you're going to have to dig deep sometimes um particularly if you're creating so i think the conference is quite different um it's I think it was quite challenging for some people. So if you're, if you're, it was challenging the status quo, really. So if you're going to do something that challenges the status quo, um, be prepared for pushback and you're going to have to, you know, really be strong in yourself, be strong in your belief that um, you're going to create this space, this community. Um, everyone else be damned if I'm allowed to swear on, on, on this podcast. Um, just hold fast to what you believe in. Um, and, um, I think I, in terms of like putting a, I want to get down to the kind of nitty gritty of putting a co- conference together. You probably don't want that so much. I don't know, but, um, it's a lot of work, obviously, which I've already alluded to. Um, I think the success is to do with, um, I love the curation of it. So my favorite part mm-hmm. is the curation, finding the speakers, um, creating the program and each year I've tried to do something a bit different so the very first one was literally just you know bringing trying to bring these two worlds together and finding the right speakers who would speak to to both worlds um and sometimes who would intersect both worlds so we had um Gillian Cornabis who uh, was uh ex-deep mind and was a very very engaging speaker you know it's a machine learning PhD, big brain, but ultimately understood what the conference was trying to do. Um, and so he spoke in a very clear way, jargon-free way to both both sides of the camp, you know, both anthropologists mm-hmm. and technologists. Um, and then we had the wonderful son, Roberts, um, who uh, makes anthropology really clear for everybody. We had Anna Kira uh, the same. And then, so it's, it's, you know, he had some amazing speakers who really spoke to people and got people inspired and fired up and and that's what you want and then the second year was very much about kind of okay people get this now um and then I was more I was I've been really interested although I called it anthropology plus technology I really wanted other voices in there as well because I knew how important those were I knew that it wasn't just about you know tech companies and just made up of UX people and computer scientists or software engineers. It's, there's a whole load of people in there as well. And there's other things they need to think about, like regulation and policy. Um, and so I really wanted to bring more of those voices in and make it truly interdisciplinary. And um, so, I yeah, again, I picked, I picked speakers, I invited speakers, so I always pay invited speakers. Um and then the, the this year we or last which year we, yes this year um, invited or put the call out for presentations. You know, I think a, a major roadblock is funding. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, did you learn anything in that space? Because the, you know, there's lots of things that people would like to start. I mean, even you know, we had talked prior to recording that you know, even just the the cost, time, and cost of running a podcast is. It's it's substantial in its own right, um, not like putting on a conference, but it's you know there's it's an effort, um, and there's costs associated with that, and so there's lots of people have you know lots of people are sort of creators in spirit and want to do something, but oftentimes yeah cost is is maybe an issue, and so yeah. what did you know what did you do to to fund this? Did you go out and, and seek funding or? Yeah, so the first year, so you're. Your main cost when you're running a conference or a summit or anything like this, particularly in the, in the physical, the first year was at a, a, an event space here in Bristol. So you've obviously got to pay for the venue. Um, you, if you've got speakers, you generally generally have to pay them a nice an honorarium and pay for accommodation and travel. So those are really big, big, big costs. So um, and then catering as well. So those are your big costs. So I think the lesson I would take initially is is try and find an institution and I did try but it wasn't um successful the first year 
um, try and find an institution that will support you if you're going to do something like this. So um, that will host you, so a university or, or something like that, because then you've cut out your big, one of your biggest costs, which is venue. Um, in terms of paying your speakers and their, their honorariums, the, the travel and, and accommodation, that's also another huge cost. Um, so you need um, you either need to go and ask for funding, um, w- whatever funding that's available in your country. I the second conference I got um, ESCRI funding, which is the Economic Social Research Council funding, which enabled me to pay all my speakers. And then you need sponsorship. You need companies to um, t- to come along and and give you money so that you can help pay for all the costs you know the, the the venue or the speakers or whatever it happens to be um and that involves sales um you know you're selling something essentially you're selling the reason why companies should invest in your event um why they should be there i decided um after the first year that i decided that i didn't want recruitment companies there and most companies either want to be there because um they want to attract employees. So you need to understand why companies want to be at your event, what at your summit, your conference. They either want to attract employees or they want to position themselves um, in that space. So they want to be seen as doing responsible tech. Um, so you have to become a salesman or a salesperson. Um, and that's quite hard. And that's probably the bit I didn't enjoy. I loved once I got uh um once i'd won uh, you know a company over and, and they'd agreed to sponsor that bit was lovely you know engaging with them and inviting them onto the podcast and having them involved and everything that was lovely so i think i'm definitely an account manager i'm definitely not a salesperson <laughs> so i found that the hardest so you there you, you've got to realize what your skills are so i'm i'm very good at marketing i'm very good at account management i'm very good at writing all this that and the other so um I did actually get somebody to teach me how to create a sponsorship pack, um, how to how to sell, how to counter objections. I'd had a little bit of, I'd had a, I'd been a sales person back in London in my early 20s and failed abysmally, so it's definitely not something I'm good at. Um, so it's, it's knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses and getting help for the bits that you're not good at. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you can learn. You know, I obviously got sponsorship from Microsoft and Spotify, so... Um, that I obviously did learn something from my um, sponsorship um, training, mini training course that I do for somebody. Um, so funding is the hardest. Thanks for sharing. It's it's helpful. I've yeah, you know, I've never thought about starting one, and I don't have any plans. But you know, just understanding that process is is uh, I think very useful um, for those out there who might be listening and want to make a difference in the way you are. So to maybe kind of you know pivot and, and kind of wrap this up. So you mentioned you know this has become very much about social justice. Um, you know, the thing I would say is maybe the term responsible tech has been around for a long time. To be honest, I have never like looked for its origin, but. In mass media, it seems like it's only popped up in the last few years in any kind of you know, significant way. And so I guess that also presents the opportunity to kind of help define it a bit and, and, and chart the course of it, which is you know, a unique place because you're, you know, there's not many organizations who are framed out around this yet, at least that I've come across. Um, I've only come across a handful so far. And so how do you see your role in charting the future of responsible tech? I think um, to keep push, pushing the, I mean that's why I sort of put social in front of it to kind of emphasise the the social um, anthropology aspect of it. Um, to keep pushing for the inclusion of um, social scientists in the design and development and deployment of tech. Um, I'm also very keen that, which you alluded to as well earlier, in terms of encouraging particularly anthropologists to take up leadership roles we have can have impact and you've alluded that to, to that as well um in other ways we don't just have to do research um we can do storytelling as you said and we can um we can become you know ctos why not um going sure. to do a you know cto ceo um and we can have so i think that's that's what we need to focus on. It's wonderful that people uh, want to do research. That's one way that we can we can have um, influence. But I do think that 
anthropologists need to step up and go into leadership roles and and shout from the rooftops that they're anthropologists. I think that's really important. And I think we need more, this is one of my drums, we need more public anthropologists, by which I mean we need people like, um, more people like Gillian Tett and Simon Roberts to stand up and be the public face of anthropology. I think as a discipline, particularly in England, I'm feeling anyway, having only been back five years, that we still don't know what anthropology is in this country, not really, and they don't in New Zealand either. So I think to push this responsible tech thing, we need to keep identifying as anthropologists. We need to, we need to um, be ambitious and uh, look for leadership roles. We need to look for ways to have impact. We need to talk about anthropology and why it's important and keep talking about it um, because technology is impacting everything that we do. Um, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, I think those would be the main things that I would would say, and storytelling as well. You know, how do we how do we talk about anthropology? How do we mm-hmm. how do we explain why it's important? Um, um, and as I love what you said earlier, actually educating in both directions. I think that we need to we need to explain what we do, what we do, and why we're important. And we also need to listen as well. Um, it's not just a one-way street. We need to listen to what other disciplines are saying, you know, what technologists are saying, um, and step up and and really make it interdisciplinary and and listen to, and learn as well. Great, perfect. Well, I think uh, that's a, a nice way to wrap that up. So I'll leave it there. Um, I can't say it better. But I guess that my last question for you is: if people wanted to, you know, learn more about the conference or yourself, you know, what where should they be looking on the internet? So if you go to um, responsibility.tech, which is also the name of the podcast, um, so go there. And if you want to, to reach out to me, um, then do on LinkedIn. Um, and then my um, consultancy is Monday and Anson, uh, which is mondayandanson.co.uk. Um, but I love hearing from people. I love, I love people reaching out and saying, you know, how do I be an anthropologist or how do I get into tech or, you know, so I love people helping people. So do reach out and I'm very happy to bring you into the book club or conference or whatever it happens to be. Great. Well, Don, thanks for coming on. I appreciate all that you shared with everybody. So it was nice talking to you. It was lovely talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology, and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.